Good morning and welcome again. Please join me in prayer as we look to God's word. Our Father in heaven, may your word be like the blacksmith's hammer. And may you use it to form us and shape us and reshape us and re-reshape us until we are the thing that you have created us to be. May it be so even now as we look to your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So some people are just contrary by nature. Whatever other people think, they think the opposite. And if something is popular, then they don't like it. Those who've known me for a while know that I have a pretty strong contrarian streak. But the funny thing is, the, uh, the more being contrary has become popular, the less it appeals to me. Other people just seem to want to shock and provoke uh, the people around them. They get a kick out of defying expectations and surprising their hearers. And as a culture, apparently we like people like that because there are a lot of them in our culture, especially on radio and TV and social media, places like that. And we continue to watch and listen and and follow on Twitter. uh, And oftentimes people like that make a lot of money by shocking us. So was, was Jesus like that? Was he a contrarian? Was he, uh, was he there to shock us? He certainly was considered uh, by people in his own day and throughout the centuries all the way to today. He certainly is considered to have surprised a lot of people and defied a lot of expectations. Was he trying to be contrary or shocking? Was his goal, as, as some, some people's goal is, to sort of catch people off guard and shake them out of their comfort zones and make them think? Wake them up. Was that his goal? I'd like, kind of like to consider that question today. The Gospels tell us a lot of stories about Jesus. They tell us a lot about what he did. But today I'd, I'd like to approach it from the opposite direction. Let's consider some of the things that Jesus didn't do throughout his life, his ministry, his time here on earth. Let's consider some things that Jesus didn't do and see if that helps us understand who he was and what he was doing a little bit more clearly. So first, let's look first to one of the most familiar parts of Jesus' story, and one that's pretty fresh on our minds, his birth, the story of Christmas. We love rescue stories. Consider how many of our most popular movies are rescue stories, from, say, Apollo 13, to Taken, to It's a Wonderful Life, all rescue stories. And I could go on, actually, I, I cut like, 10 of them out of the manuscript because I just kept thinking of rescue story movies. Or we could look at uh, what Time Magazine has named the number one all-time Save the Princess movie, Star Wars, A New Hope, 1977. And think about how the entire arc of the story changes when the heroes discover that Princess Leia is being held on the Death Star where they happen to be at that moment. It changes the whole story from one of we need to get out of here as soon as possible, an escape story, to we need to save the princess, a rescue story. And in a sense, that's what Christmas is about. It's a rescue story. It's like Luke and Han sneaking into cell block AA-23 disguised as stormtroopers to rescue Princess Leia. But the thing about Jesus' birth is that it's a really weird rescue. 
It seems to be all wrong. Everything about it is backwards. It's missing all of the things that we would send if we were trying to do a rescue, right? If we were trying to stand, uh, do a rescue, what would we send? Something strong with authority, with razzle and dazzle. But in this story, there's no paramedics. There's no smoke jumpers. There are no Navy SEALs in the Christmas story. The hero is a baby. That's a weird hero. It's a baby, a baby born with constant baby needs. And without help, this baby is going to die. So in itself, that just seems like, it doesn't seem like much of a rescue, does it? That's not the hero that we would send. But Jesus' birth was understood from the beginning to be a rescue story. It was described that way from even before his birth. Here, right before his birth, a relative described Jesus with these words. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He will give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. From Luke chapter 1. And actually, even long before Jesus was born, more than 600 years beforehand, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when Jesus, the baby, had grown up, and when he was ready to begin his work of rescue, he went to a public place and read those words from Isaiah aloud and told everyone who was present that that's what he was all about. This was his life. This was his work. He said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he went from there to begin his work of rescue. So that's something, some thoughts about what Jesus didn't do at his birth. It's a rescue story, but it does not look like any rescue story that you would write or that I would write. It leads to the second thing that we should look at, the life of Jesus. And this is such a broad topic that literally thousands of books have been written about the life of Jesus. And that was just in 2017. John the Apostle, uh, in his his gospel, his biography of Jesus, he said these, he wrote these words. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So the life of Jesus is an enormous topic. We could go on for, we could just go on for any amount of time describing how Jesus didn't do what we expected him to do in his life. So we'll have to content ourselves today with looking at just one thing that Jesus didn't do throughout his life. And that is this. We'll look at this one specific thing. Jesus did not turn away from gross people. The Gospels are full of examples, dozens of examples of Jesus drawing close to the broken, to the failures, the bleeding, the demon-possessed, the diseased, the dying. Here's just one example, one short example from dozens that we could read from Luke chapter 9. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, 
It convulses him so hard that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him and it will hardly leave him. And Jesus answered, bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now maybe you're an exception but I suspect that most of us who encountered someone in that situation would not be drawn to them. Believe it or not, something a little bit like this happened to me uh, within the last couple weeks. We were out to eat with a couple friends when a lady in the restaurant had a complete mental breakdown. She got up and started screaming at the top of her lungs and running wildly back and forth around the restaurant. And I was genuinely concerned for her that she was going to hurt someone, maybe even herself. But my instinctive reaction was this. Unless she comes near my kids, I'm staying out of this. I mean, the point is, like, even if you're a pretty caring, nurturing person, maybe you're even a medical professional, maybe you're somebody who, who like, has given their whole vocation, their, their professional career to caring for other people, I suspect that we, all of us, can think of people for whom we would rather, from whom we would rather turn away. Sometimes that comes from a desire to be better than others, or if not better, then at least not like them. Jesus told a story about a man who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other, other men, especially that guy. And he had a long list of deeds and accomplishments, good stuff that he had done to back up his prayer. And he listed them all right off there before God and said, I, I thank you that I'm not, like, I'm not like other people, especially that guy. But Jesus said there was a second person present that day who prayed, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it was the second person who went home justified and not the first. The truth is, we all, to one degree or another, We're more aware of it sometimes than we are at other times. But all of us think being good will rescue us. All of us think that being good, or at least being better than that guy, will rescue us. We think our accomplishments and our diligence and our brains and our body will rescue us. Or at least make us better than the the people that we want to contrast ourselves with. But the truth is they won't. None of those things will rescue us. We do not have what we need within ourselves. We still need a rescuer. We need someone who won't turn away from gross people like us. That's all we have time for from Jesus' life. We'll skip ahead and look at what Jesus didn't do when he was on trial. Even though he did not directly challenge the political authorities of his day, they arrested Jesus for insurrection, for starting a rebellion. But during Jesus' trial, he did not defend himself. That's incredibly surprising. Because just as human beings, very, very few things bother us more than injustice being directed at us. Isn't that right? Feeling slighted or being falsely accused, even over something small can stew in our minds for days and weeks and even years and it can completely undermine even our closest relationships if left unresolved. We we just feel inherently compelled 
to set the record straight, to defend ourselves, to say, yeah, but you don't understand. This is true. This is real. We just have to, we just have to do it. We're compelled to do it. But Jesus didn't. He did not defend himself during his trial. During his trial, he said very little. For hours, charges and threats and insults were hurled at him, and he mostly remained silent. John the Apostle recorded this exchange with Pilate, the Roman governor of the region, from John chapter 18. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Can you imagine being on trial with your life on the line? We're not talking about getting a ticket uh, and going into the court and pleading no contest. We're talking a capital crime. Your life is on the line. If the judgment against you is guilty, you, you could be put to death. Can you imagine going into a trial like that when you're innocent, by the way, and not defending yourself? Why would he do that? I mean, in this moment, Jesus is intentionally choosing to endure unmeasurable injustice in order to accomplish something else. That's what Jesus didn't do at his trial. Now let's consider his death. Jesus' trial ended with his being sentenced to death. Let's consider what Jesus didn't do at his death. I've included some quotes from all four Gospels, all four of the the biographies of Jesus included in the Bible. Beginning with part of that story of, of his execution from John, Pilate said to them, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And they cried out, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What, e- what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And the people answered, his blood, Let his blood be on us and on our children. And then later on, Luke, Luke records him as saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So I mean, at his death, Jesus was, throughout the course of these events, he was whipped to within an inch of his life. With blood pouring out of his body, they clothed him with a robe and gave him a staff and pressed a crown of thorns onto his head and they nailed a sign above his head that said, the king of the Jews. And all of it was to mock him. And his possessions were raffled and crowds gathered around to laugh at him and say things like, he saved others, let him save himself. If he can, if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. How did Jesus respond to all of that? What didn't he do in that circumstance? Well, think of it this way. Here we have the son of God, the creator of all things, who had the full resources of heaven and earth at his disposal. He could have done anything. Fire and water and ice and earth and wind and air and the mountains and the trees 
armies of angels. He could have called in any of them and done anything he wanted to. But in the lyrics to one of my, my favorite Christian rap songs, it puts it this way. On his command, opposition was through. But Christ said, forgive them. They know not what they do. And notice that he didn't just sit there and take it like some kind of stoic hero. I can take it. Keep pouring it out on me. He actually prayed that those who were torturing and mocking him would be forgiven. And even more than that, he actually ministered to others who were dying and was ministering to other people while he stood there nailed to a cross. This is just one example of several that we could give of him as he's dying reaching out to others and speaking words of salvation to them. Luke's gospel gives us just one example. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And can you imagine anything more comforting than the Son of God as you're you're dying saying to you, fear not. Today, you will be saved. Moving on from there, moving on from the cross, after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus did not reveal himself to noteworthy people like we would have done. He didn't march into the the office of the local newspaper and give an interview. He didn't storm into the centers of power and demand, hey, remember me? It's time that things change. He didn't do that. Instead, he chose a bunch of unlikely people, some of whom had just disowned him, just disavowed all, I never even knew that guy, they said. He chose some of them to witness his resurrected life, and he tasked them with changing the world in his name. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the early followers of Jesus. He wrote this. For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise, according to to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not. To bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's how it's worked since the beginning. God has chosen the things that are not, even us, to build his kingdom. I hope you hear yourself in that description. Jesus did not build the church or change the world the way we would have. Not not at all, not remotely like how we would have done it. But thanks be to God that he didn't. And thanks be to God that he chose to use even us. So, okay, we've, we've, we've looked at, we've described at least a half dozen or more of things that Jesus didn't do throughout his life. 
Let's look at the big picture. Why didn't he do those things? Why is there a gap between what Jesus did and what we would have done in those circumstances? I'll suggest to you two reasons why that gap exists. The first is this. Our expectations are way off. In his day and in ours, and in every century in between, people have expected Jesus to do certain things for them that he, that he was never going to do. He was working to accomplish one thing, but we've been looking for him to do something completely different. And the problem is with our eyes. The problem is with how we see. We, we think we see exactly what Jesus should be doing in our lives and in the world around us, but we don't see clearly. We see a blurry image in a mirror, and as soon as we look away, we forget what we just saw. It reminds me of uh, a short story by Ernest Hemingway. I think it's the single best short story ever written. It's only four pages long, and it's poignant and profound. And there's only three characters in this short story. There's a very old man who's very broken, and basically just sort of shuffles around and it doesn't function very much. There's a very young man who uh, just has so much disdain for the old man and he just is brimming with confidence. He knows exactly what life is supposed to be about and he knows he can go and get it and accomplish everything that he hopes to do. And then there's a middle-aged man. And the middle-aged man basically says, I remember being you. But now I find, he doesn't say it in these words, but the, the point of the story is he finds himself drifting toward the place of the old man, away from the confidence of his youth. And the point of the story is, over time, the more you experience, the more you see, the less, the less sure you are. I mean, there's a time, wasn't there a time when, I think probably for all of us, that we knew exactly, I mean, give me the keys. Hand me the keys to the world. And I'll make it work. This is, I mean, we're going to change some stuff around here. And the older you get, the more you see, the more you, you realize, man, honest, like, don't give me the keys. Don't give me the keys. I'm not up for that. Our vision is off. There's a gap between what Jesus is trying to do and what we think he should be doing. And so the first thing that Jesus needs to do is he needs to fix our eyes. Speaking of Jesus, John the Apostle wrote, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And in that, in that verse, he's intentionally echoing the creation of the world all the way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis when God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The coming of Jesus represents a new creation in which God shines light once again to push back our darkness so that we can begin to see things clearly again. Or to borrow the words of Isaiah the prophet. We who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus came to restore our sight. He came to realign our priorities and our desires and our loves so that we would no longer chase things that destroy us. But instead, we would gain new life in him. That's the first reason why there's a gap between what Jesus does and what we expect him to do is because 
Our perspective is way off. Our expectations are way off. Here's the second reason. The second reason Jesus didn't do what we expect is that he was following a plan that was given to him, not improvising his own. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, is just one example. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And perhaps that's the most shocking, paradigm-changing thing that Jesus ever did, actually, if you think about it. Because here is someone with supernatural power to perform miracles, who taught pure, unmixed wisdom and truth. He, he was even raised from the dead, and all the while he did it subject to someone else's plan and priorities. Now see, our culture tells us that all of the best things, all of the best things about us come from within. If you want true freedom and real joy, then you need to stop listening to wisdom from outside, the wisdom of others, and you need to find your own wisdom within. That's the recipe. This idea is central to nearly all Disney movies, for example, including the most recent Disney movie, The Last Jedi. But in contrast to that stands Jesus, who, if you believe what the Gospels say about him, if 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 what the gospels say about Jesus is true, then he was certainly the most, he was the greatest and most accomplished and most influential person who ever lived. And he describes himself as not doing his own will, but doing the will of someone who sent him. That's, he's, he's saying there's a, there is a, a true humanity, a true freedom, a true joy that exists in following not in creating. What astonishing humility that is. Surely there has never been another person like him. He, he shatters our paradigms of wholeness and happiness by showing us that the good life comes not by self-invention, but by following the one who created us and who created all things. When Jesus, when Jesus called his first disciples, he said to them, follow me, and he says the same thing to us today. Follow me. He didn't do his own will, but he did the will of one who sent him. And similarly, he calls us not to do our own will, but to follow him and to do his. We cannot conjure up true freedom and real joy from within. We can only find it by following him. I read a Christmas greeting this week that said it nicely. Here's the quote. In our broken, sinful human condition, we are wasting away. We long to know that we are accepted and approved, and yet we keep looking for our worth and things that can never satisfy, false gods that can never fill the hole in our soul. But when Christ comes into our lives and we find acceptance in him, behold, the longing to be known is met. In Christ, our souls are set free from looking to our own performance and perfection because we are given his. In Christ, we find our true identity and his righteousness alone. In Christ, we find rest and peace. The plan that Jesus followed in all the things that he didn't do and in all the things that he did was nothing less than a plan to redeem all things, to restore the whole world to its original goodness and to bring everything into submission under his good, just, and beautiful reign. 
And so the question before us is this. This is the fork in the road before every person who is here today. Will we follow him or will we walk the other way? I'll finish with this one last quote. The gospel is the announcement that through the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus, God is setting everything right again, including the men and women who are repenting and relying on this king as, only their, as their only rescuer from sin. By now it should be clear that Christianity is not a religion that's a list of advice for you to do. No. Instead, Christianity brings news of what Jesus has already done. It's not about accomplishment, the accomplishment of your good works. It's about the announcement of his good works. So how will you respond to this news? There are only two ways. Number one, you can reject your king and rescuer, Jesus Christ, and try to live life according to your rules and save yourself. And this kind of person can look either good or bad by the world's standards. It doesn't matter which, both reject Jesus. Or, you can live with Jesus Christ as your king and rescuer. Turn from living as your own king and trust in Jesus for rescue. This second kind of person does bad things as well as good things. But most importantly, this person has been rescued by King Jesus from both her own goodness and her own badness. That's what a Christian is. And that's great news. And that's the news of what Jesus didn't do when he was here. And it's the news of what he did. Thanks be to God. Amen.